want to go live on video but are a bit unsure where to start? Or maybe you already go live a lot but you are scared to sell. Download for free the Live Authentic Storytelling Guide. Six steps to infuse storytelling into your live videos. You'll get practical structure to help you convert your audience from raving fans to loyal customers. Go to www.livestorytellingguide.com and get your free guide today. Today's guest is my friend and collaborator, David Newman. He is a renowned sacred mantra artist, singer-songwriter, author, and inspirational teacher. David has released numerous acclaimed albums, including the number one iTunes world music bestseller, Love is Awake. He is the author of the number one Amazon bestseller, The Time Traveler, and the creator of Practical Mantra. David's music, which you'll hear in a moment, is a celebration of spirit, diving deep into the power of mantra and sacred song, and spreading a message of hope, peace, and universal love. In today's episode, David and I talk about the importance of following your directional truth and life's passion, what Sanskrit mantra is and what it does for you, and how to begin a mantra practice. So before we begin, I really want you to hear a bit of David's music. So take a listen to the music and then this incredible interview with a truly heart-centered person who I love. There was a time of darkness When I couldn't see He reached across the raging waters And put a hand out to me David Newman, I am super excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for, okay, for being, are you ready for this? My first male guest. Wow, that's amazing. I'm honored, Nick. Thanks for having me. I had made a decision <laughs> that the first 25 guests were going to be female. Wow. And the, the idea of honoring the divine feminine, the, the rising of the feminine energy, and we're not going to forget about the divine masculine either, so welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. You know, it's funny, I just uh, I just performed in an online music festival dedicated to the goddess, and it was, uh, I think, about the same thing, 25 women, and then me and Krishna Das, so um, this is an honor. I It makes me, makes me feel like I'm in touch with my feminine, so to speak. With Krishna Das, that's a pretty good uh, company you were keeping, and uh, amazing women as well, I'm sure. They were, indeed. <laughs> I'm going to dig into mantra with you. Please. Because that is truly your, not only your passion, but your expertise in such a beautiful way for those that don't yet know you. I've read your bio. They'll know you a little bit about you, but I actually want to back up a bit. I want to back up to what brought you to mantra. 
what was the path that brought you to being a mantra singer? Well, it, it dates back a, a long ways. When I was in my early teens, um, which was, uh, I would say, about 43 years ago, <laughs> dating myself, my family decided, my mother and father, my mother says it was her, so let's say my mother took the rest of our family, my father, my brother, and I, to learn meditation as a kid. And uh, back in the, in the 70s, there was a particular form of meditation called TM or Transcendental Meditation, which was founded by a yogi named Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And it was very in vogue back then. And so my, my mother was looking for ways to sort of bring less stress into family life. And so my entire family went to the courses. We got initiated. We got a secret mantra. And then I started meditating at that point. Um, one of my favorite recollections of that is that my mother was a divorce attorney back then. And the mantra that they gave her was the exact same sound as the last name of one of her most problematic clients that she had. <laughs> so she was doomed from the start. She said she couldn't repeat the mantra because it just brought her back to that experience every time. But I was the only one who kind of went forward with it in my family. And then it just, you know, over the years, I um, was introduced to different forms of mantras. And then, of course, it became more of a more of a mainstay in my world. You didn't start out to be, you know, when you graduated from high school, you went to college, but you didn't go to college to study music. Interestingly, uh, the, the sort of Cliff Notes version is I actually did study oh, you music did. in college. Yes. I was a music major with, I was a pre-med minor. So I was considering medical school. And in order to go to medical school, you had to take a series of prerequisites for medical school, certain, you know, science courses and a year of English and things of that nature. So I was, I was minored in pre-med, but I majored in music in college. Yeah. Okay. Somehow in my mind, you went to law school. I did. <laughs> okay, so I'm so, not wrong. <laughs> no, no. They went like this. It went college. Then I moved to Los Angeles and was in the music industry. I worked for a record label from 1987 to 1990. 1990, I moved from Los Angeles to New York City, and I enrolled in law school, and I graduated in 1992 in New York. Yeah. So it's been a circuitous journey, you know. I just, your know, life is, for me, has been a zigzag, and it continues to be. <laughs> but I'm not alone this time around. You're definitely not alone in the, in the land of COVID. Okay, so you came out to L.A., you worked in the music industry. Did it just not feel right to you? Like, what made the decision, like, oh, no, I'm going to go to New York? Sure. Well, after college, I moved back to Philadelphia, and I recorded a series of demos and I got interest from a few record labels, so I moved to Los Angeles and pursued a career. I was in my early 20s as a sort of singer-songwriter, kind of pop star, kind of. That's, that's where I was going. And I met with a bunch of record labels, and, you know, they all with the cigars in their mouth said, kid, I like what you got, but go back and, you know, refine your craft. So I stuck around in L.A. and I just the level of the competition of, you know, young artists and songwriters just in a little kind of demoralized me. And I don't know if demoralized me is the right word, but I, I met a, a music publisher who offered me a job. And so I just kind of transitioned 
organically from pursuing a career as an artist to becoming a music industry executive. And I ultimately was hired by a label called Island Records, Bob Marley and U2 and other artists. And I, I worked for, for their uh, music publishing division for two years. So but to answer your question, I just eventually saw what the music industry was like, kind of, um, I got under the hood of it. And did not envision myself having a future there. At some point, I just thought this is not where I want to be, you know, in 10, 20, 30 years. And so it really sent me on a kind of inquiry as to what I wanted to do with my life. And that's when I just thought that the next logical step was to go to law school. <laughs> so I was, I was living with a woman at the time who was also a music publisher and it just so happened that they were opening an office. They were, it was called A&M Records, started by Jerry Moss and Herb Alpert, the trumpet player. Mm -hmm. It just so happened that they were opening a division in New York City. So her name was Molly. So the two of us moved to New York City. She opened up the East Coast division of her publishing company, and I enrolled in law school. So then did you practice law? So what happened to me was um, in the beginning of my second year of law school, I met a yogi who was giving a workshop from – he lived in Maui. Okay, here we go. Now I, now I know where we're going. <laughs> now it's starting to make more sense. <laughs> yeah, it's starting to click. I, I, you were living in New York. I went to, uh, to Cardozo, which was in the West Village, right across from, uh, from the new school. Right where I lived. Yeah, right where you lived, exactly. Yeah. And so I met this yogi, and it was just extraordinary. I had been dabbling in yoga and meditation for years, as I mentioned, but I was just very, very deeply impassioned by him, by his teachings. And I finished out the rest of law school. Basically, I would say I practiced at that time. I don't anymore. About three hours of yoga a day and about, you know, one hour of um, legal studies. <laughs> but um, my friends eventually were wondering why I was so chill. And I told them, and then um, my Last year in law school, I started actually teaching yoga classes. Mm. And after law school, I moved back to Philadelphia. That was in June. In August, I took the bar exam. This was 1992. And then in October, I opened a yoga school. Wow. Yeah. That is a, a, a fast trajectory in succession. And you were very young to open a yoga school. Well, 1992, I was born in 63, so uh, about 30, 29. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And back then, you know, um, there really, it really wasn't happening at all in Philadelphia. That yoga center was pretty much the first of its kind to actually devote itself wholeheartedly to yoga. At the, in 1992, you had gyms, you know, you had people teaching, you know, in their homes and things like that. But like the yoga center kind of explosion hadn't happened yet. Yeah, because this was pre what I call the Madonna phase. Yes, it you was. Know, pre sort of that bringing, yes, it was obviously in the United States, we know that. It was certainly in New York, certainly in some of the major cities, but it, it, it hadn't had that awakening. It hadn't had that opening across the country. So that was very brave of you. Well, you know, I, I was also, I had a, the model that I was exposed to was being in law school in New York City. I would go to Jiva Mukti. Yeah. There was a teacher I liked named Alan Finger. I think it was called mm -hmm. Ishta Yoga. I At don't, Ishta, yeah. I think Ishta, um, I don't think Laughing Lotus had opened at that point or other yoga centers. But, you know, thank you for saying it was brave, but you know how it is when something moves through you, it's like, you know, that soul force speaks to you. And speaking of, you know, making those decisions when you get moved by spirit, I remember sitting down with my parents after taking the bar exam 
and looking them in the eye. And, and just for a little backstory, my father is, is not alive anymore. He was a surgeon. My mother was a Pennsylvania Supreme Court justice. And looking them in the eyes after taking the bar exam and just saying, I'm opening a yoga center, you know. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, it just felt right. It felt so natural to make that choice. I kind of, in some ways, knew that it was my destiny. But having just studied law, I I did have an approach with my parents. And the approach was, just let me, you know, get this out of my system. Mm. In other words, give me my one year in yoga, and then I'll get serious, you know. Right, 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 right. Give me, give me my gap year. Yeah, give me my gap year, and now 28 years later. and You're still in the gap. I'm still in the gap, but I'll tell you a little funny story that, that I love to share. So, as I mentioned, my mother was uh, on the bench. She was a, a justice, and at some point, like in the mid to late 1990s, I decided that, you know, this is my life. I am a yoga teacher. I'm a yogi. I'm not a lawyer. I'm never turning back. You know, I just sort of crossed a line in the sand. And the way that I declared that was that I stopped taking my CLEs, my continuing legal education classes. And you would get like an announcement. They would send you in the mail like every couple months, you know, your bar status is going to last. Make sure you take the classes. And I kept ignoring it and ignoring it. And I finally got a notice in the mail that said your bar status has lapsed. You're no longer a a member of the Pennsylvania State Bar. Fine. I was totally fine with that. I purposely did that. So in any event, my mother invited me over for dinner one night. She made me a lovely dinner. She said, may I speak with you? We sat down after dinner. She brought out a piece of paper and she said, you know, David, I don't know if you know this, but all the justices on the bench get a notification of all those, uh, you know, members of the bar whose status has lapsed. And this was put upon my desk this week. And when I looked on it, there was your name. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it, it was one of those transformational, again, looking my mom in the eyes and saying, you know, uh, Nettie, Nettie, that's not me anymore. Yeah. And, you know, there were just various moments of, of just knowing where the direction of my life was, as bizarre as it sounded to other people, you know. Well, having met your mother, who is lovely and smart and kind and generous, how was that for her, that transition of, or acceptance of who you are? How was that relationship? Pretty extraordinary, actually. Yeah. Pretty extraordinary. Um, Ultimately, both my mother and my father saw what finding my life's passion did for me as a human being and, and also were able to observe the kind of effect and service that I was able to offer to other people. And although it was very different than, you know, what they would have thought. In other words, when I was a kid, it wasn't, David, these are your options, lawyer, doctor, kirtan singer, you know, it did, well, that wasn't it. So it, it was unusual to them, but I have to say they were accepting and ultimately supportive. And I feel very, very, very grateful for that, that they've always, uh, you know, honored my path. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's a beautiful thing to be, to witness when a parent, because now you're a parent, right? right, And you being able to instill that same love, ultimately, because that is love, I would say, in action form. It really is. Yeah, just the the capacity to accept somebody as they are, and to uh, nurture their path. My daughter, who's nine, although I am a mantra singer and have spent a lot of time in India and work with Sanskrit and yoga, I've never uh, left the guitar aside. So, you know, when I present my mantras and chant and sing, it's always with uh, a traditionally Western instrument. I'm a guitar player. And so my daughter, her name is Tulsi, um, played the guitar for a bit and kind of liked it. And, you know, one day said to me, 
just out of the absolute blue, totally unexpected, she said, Dad, I'm interested in playing the sitar, which is a very complex instrument, and one that I, I never gravitated to. So I just acknowledged her, and then she said it again, and I acknowledged her. Then she sent me a text from my ex, and it said, Dad, I'm really serious about this. And so for the last three months, she's been studying and practicing and passionate about the sitar. And she came to me one day and she said, Dad, I hope you're not upset with me. I, I said, Tulsi, why would I be upset with you? She said, I, I hope you're not upset that I'm more interested in the sitar than I am in the guitar. <laughs> and I said, of course not, you know. Oh, my gosh. I love that. Yeah. So it's the total opposite, you know. It is the total opposite. Yeah. So that brings us to Mantra. How did you then transition from owning a yoga studio, which is really sort of a physical-based practice, into Mantra? Well, when I was teaching yoga, I was part of a, of a lineage at that time that was called Vini Yoga. You're, you're a yogi and a teacher. So the teacher at that time was a teacher named Gary Kraftsal. His teacher was a, a man named TKV Desikachar, and his father was his teacher, T. Krishnamacharya. So a big element of that particular lineage was it was a practicing yoga asana, the physical part of yoga. There was the uh, philosophical and spiritual part was the study of a text called the Yoga Patanjali Yoga Sutras. And then there was a Vedic chanting component. So um, that was one of the things that really brought me into the fold of those teachings was the Vedic chanting, was chanting in Sanskrit. And um, having taken Latin and having taken Spanish and going to a Hebrew parochial school when I was a kid and learning Hebrew, it wasn't that languages were like difficult for me, but, you know, I had to sort of, they were efforted, so to speak. But when I, when I started studying with Gary, when I was in law school and uh, he presented the first Vedic mantra to me, it was, it was so effortless and um, natural for me to chant in that language. So that was where I first started. So even when I was teaching yoga at my yoga center was called Yoga on Main, um, I was also teaching people some Vedic chanting as well, working with Sanskrit mantras. But during that time, I was taken to an ashram in South Fallsburg, New York. Um, there was a, a guru there named Guru Mai, and she had a lot of followers. And I, I went to see her, and it was a, an auditorium of about a 1,000 people. And they were chanting this mantra to the Divine Feminine, to the Divine Mother, Kali Durga Namo Namah. And as soon as everybody started chanting, it was just my whole chemistry changed. This is a particular form of chanting called kirtan, which is what I do. The group chanting, more devotionally oriented group mantra chanting in Sanskrit. And they chanted this one mantra that afternoon for about 45 minutes. And halfway into it, you could see that all the bodies were moving, you know, synchronistically. And I just, my body felt so good. My mind felt open. And I just thought, <laughs> you know, like, the Billy Crystal movie, what was it when Harry meant Harry meant yeah. Sally, like the Meg Ryan. Yeah, <laughs> I'll take whatever she has, you know. Like yeah. I want more of this in my life. It was blissful, quite frankly. And so then I just started to explore the practice of kirtan, and then was introduced to some chanters, some kirtan singers that were Western, used Western instrumentation to sort of bridge this East-West gap. And that is Jayutal and Krishna Das and people of that ilk. And because I had a yoga center, which is natural for me, I just had them all come to my yoga center and, you know, and give workshops and, uh, and give kirtans. And I, I started to learn that way. You got paid to learn. I got paid to learn. Exactly. That's, yeah, that's brilliant. That's the best, right? Yeah, truly brilliant. 
So I know for me, when I first began the began a practice of of mantra of chanting, I was scared, not necessarily of the words or the vibration, but I was such a perfectionist because having been a singer, I was so worried about what it was going to sound like or what it was going to be like. If somebody's just starting there or wanting to begin a practice of mantra, what advice or wisdom can you offer? Two things. The first thing that I always like to say is that mantra, in particular, not in particular as distinct or better than other forms of mantra, but in the context of Sanskrit, which is what I work with and share, it works on a level of sound vibration. You know, I often teach people that it's non-symbolic language. It's not describing something outside the sound. The thing that the sound is pointing to is within the sound itself. And I don't know if that made sense, but the point is, is that you don't need to bring any kind of cerebral or uh, intellection overlay into the experience. The sound itself becomes the healer and you become the surrender, so to speak. Well, and that makes total sense to me because I was so in my head about the sound, I couldn't actually have the the full experience. It wasn't until I dropped into my heart, dropped in, that I was able to be present, ultimately, to the experience. That's right. I often describe when people chant, and by the way, one of the things about chanting together, which is a little different now um, in this time, is that the being together and chanting with others, we help each other relax. I often describe, you know, you start off chanting with others, and at first it's I'm chanting and you're chanting. And that's the least expansive form of chanting. Then it shifts as you start to relax and let go. And these mantras, by the way, organically are calibrated to bring you into your heart. That's what they're made for, so to speak. So it goes from I'm chanting and you're chanting to we're chanting, which is a more expansive form of I'm chanting and you're chanting. And then there's this magical moment that, you know, all of us who chant live for. And that's, it's not even we're chanting. You know, there's just one voice. Mm. And it doesn't belong to any of us, and it's moving through all of us. And I'm sure as an actor, you've experienced that as a musician, when all of a sudden you're with a band playing music and no one's thinking about it. It just feels like the band is being played, so to speak, by something beyond everybody. But the beauty of chanting is that it doesn't require any kind of craft, like, you know, is studying acting for many years or studying music. You just jump in, you start chanting, and the mantras just have these, they're like keys. They open these doors for us. And they really don't, it, it's really, I, when I teach people about mantras and I, and I inform them about pronunciation, I always say that the pronunciation, it's not about getting it right. It's not about being in your head. When you learn about the pronunciation, it's going to open the mantra up more, more for you. It's going to give you a kind of confidence and help you to kind of strike the bell like right in the middle and get that perfect tone. But that doesn't mean if, you know, if a syllable here is off or a syllable there is off, the, the mantra will still work for you. And so I, what I tell people is don't worry about getting it right, especially in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And don't worry about what it means. The direct translation of the Sanskrit, you mean? Like, don't worry about it meaning something specific. Yes. And, uh, you know, I can translate a particular mantra in about 10 different ways at, on about mm-hmm. 10 different levels, you know. But the the most healing essence of a mantra is the sound. Yeah. And that's, you know, the mind can't really <laughs> comprehend or grok that. And for me, what I have found when I'm chanting, when I'm when I'm in it, is that it brings up a meaning for me, within me. Absolutely. I'll tell you, Nick, people would walk into a, a kirtan, a, a chant session concert, 
They've never chanted before. They'll just jump in and they'll kind of do their best in trying to get the words, or they may even just listen. And then the mantra chanting has this transformational effect on everyone in the room and differently for everyone. So that person who has no idea what the mantra means suddenly has this cathartic experience like absolute bliss. And I call it like everything is going to be okay. This Or they just start bawling their eyes out and crying. Or there's a myriad of possible emotional responses, and that's with having no idea about what they're chanting. And so to me, that drives the point home that it's the sound that's, it's like, that's what's entering into us. I actually brought brought a friend to your concert, uh-huh. to your, uh, in New York, at Integral mm-hmm. Yoga. They had never chanted before they didn't know in sanskrit and i remember this so specifically because i we were we were we were in it and i turned and i looked over at at my friend tom and he had tears just rolling down his cheek it was so beautiful to witness it was so beautiful to be a part of yeah those those were the great moments for me doing that work all i tell people is just have an open heart and an open mind and be willing to have a new experience And, you know, I've never sort of felt myself in the business to do anything but provide people with an opportunity just to drop into their hearts. And from there, just, you know, if I can touch people's journeys, that's always been my my intention. Well, I know that you've done that. Thank you. I've been able to witness it. And the journey continues. Yeah, and the journey continues. So speaking of which, how do you view your creativity? What is creativity to you? I've looked at it differently at different times in my life. I just completed a cycle of about 20 years of writing songs and music, recording those songs, traveling around the world and sharing that music. And in the heart of that experience, if there were moments to me where I wasn't writing or a song wasn't coming through or I was going through a dry spell, I had to really remind myself that, you know, that creativity is a bigger subject than simply writing a song. Mm. That the creativity is you wake up in the morning and you open your eyes and the creative process begins. Well, actually, at nighttime, too, when you close your eyes, the creative process ends and begins in a new way as well. So I went through a period where I definitely defined the the sort of um, the centerpiece of my creativity was in the process of writing music. But life as a creative process wasn't lost on me. It's just that writing music was kind of center stage, so to speak. And then something happened to me just, uh, you know, I, I don't know, a, a year and a half ago. And I just felt that I had completed some big chunk of my life's work. And I suddenly just did not feel the impulse to regularly write music, um, nor did I feel sort of uncomfortable if I wasn't writing music. And so I would say right now I'm in that place in life where rather than the arrow moving out, I'm kind of pulling the arrow back much, much more at ease with living in the unknown and allowing life to reveal what's next for me, but also not just what's next for me, just the joy of appreciating the creative process in the simple act of being. That's kind of where I am right now. So somebody the other day said to me, well, what do you do with your days, you know? And I really had a hard time answering that question because truly for me right now, because I don't have a nine to five job and I do teach online and, and I'm engaged in different kinds of activities, 
But I just love the experience of, you know, waking up, having a cup of coffee, my dog sits on my lap, and then let's just see what the day brings. And and to me, that's every day is a new narrative. And you never know who's going to call. You're going to take your dog on a walk and have a chat with somebody or a new opportunity is going to arise um, in front of you or I'm going to get inspired to cook a great meal or whatever it is. So I, I really feel that, you know, when we're aligned with creativity in its most kind of essential place, that we are aligned with the creator and we we are creative beings by nature. So I would say I am much less less defining creativity in in a specific way right now. I I just enjoy the life as a creative process. Well, I I so get that on, on on many, many levels, partially because I think that my creativity has certainly evolved over time. That's for for sure. What I used to think of as creativity to where it is now, the journey, it's a little like the spiritual path. It's a little bit like the walk, Yes. right? It it evolves and shifts and changes into the, and not dissimilar to you, I'm more of a state of being now. Partly, I think COVID has certainly uh, played into that a bit in the fact that I've had to sit still. Sure. Not dissimilar to you. I was flying. I was on a plane every, every other week. Exactly. And to sit still now, it's been such a pleasure and a joy for me. And I have never felt more creative in my entire life. I've never felt more. And it's not about being productive. That's the difference. I know. Exactly. And, and it's sort of a gift we wouldn't have necessarily given ourselves unless it was imposed a, upon us, so to speak. But I'm with you. I, I just appreciate uh, spaciousness to, to allow life to do the creating through me. And, you know, it, it can be very nuanced and I'm very satisfied by it. And we'll see. You never really know. As I've discussed my past, who know, you know, before Kirtan came into my life, I didn't even know it existed. <laughs> I didn't even know it was a thing. So who knows what's out there that I, I'm not even aware of yet that, that may impassion and inspire me. But it's also the idea that you're open. Absolutely. That. And like I said, more at ease with not knowing than I've ever been. I, you know, that, that's been a, a gift of, of, of experience of life, you know, is, is just to know that, that life has its own rhythm and its own pace. I use the word ripe. I'm, I'm much um, more available to allow things to ripen these days, you know, until they're ready. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's been a bit of a, a surrendering journey of sorts, surrendering to today, right now, in this moment, how I can serve. How can I serve? That's really been my mantra, particularly in the last six, eight months, just how can I show up and serve today? Exactly. You know, I w- was going to go to India this year, but uh, obviously, like many, um, wasn't able to travel. But for years before that, I would sit with this uh, Baba who was 100 years old, and he, he lived in a cave. And he hadn't really left his cave in this sort of surrounding outside area up in the, in the foothills for 13 years. And that was his service to humanity, was just sitting in his cave. He always kept his, uh, his duni, which is his fire, going, always. And he had three altars in his little cave, and he always kept ghee lamps going, and he would do prayers and rituals all day, every day. That was his service to humanity. That was a great lesson for me, you know, that, mm. that, you know, don't judge what your service is supposed to look like. You know, I love the story of the guru whose dharma was to have one student. You know, the, the guru could have felt like, I'm a terrible guru. Why did I only have one student when that guru down the street has a thousand? But, you know, that guru had one disciple and that disciple had a million followers. Yeah. yeah. That ripple effect. It's that ripple right. effect. And you really never know 
And and I feel that being a musician, I've, I've put out now, um, you know, like 12 albums and I don't know, like nine singles. And I don't know who's listening and how my music is affecting and inspiring people. So I love when I get emails or messages, you know, I was listening to music when my relative died or, you know, when we procreated and brought our child into the world or whatever. But you just put your love and service into the world. And then there's a Sanskrit word, which I'm sure you know, which is swaha. You just put it out into the world and swaha, you let it go. And you don't have a judgment about it. Yeah, I, I learned that lesson when I first came into the online space. You know, I would be doing my videos. I do Facebook Lives every week. And I was going live and talking, and you know, and having conversations. And somebody would say, they would never comment. They would never like it. But I would hear from a friend or a friend of a friend, oh, I, I listened to that video that you put out. I, I really liked what you had to say. And I was like, wait, <laughs> you've been listening to those? Right. You know, I mean, you don't know how you're affecting people and how it is. And again, that, that ripple idea of, of how it can then move, move on and on and on and on and on. So speaking of the online space. Yeah. I just want to say one thing, by the way, Nick. I was just going to say, I feel like if you just stay very connected to your heart and move from there, the rest takes care of itself. That's my yeah. basic life philosophy. Well, you are you are a heart-centered man who sings from his heart and helps others drop into their heart. So yep. A life's work. That's a life's work. It, is. it really is. I was going to say that you have moved into the online space as a teacher. Where can people come learn mantra from you? How can they find you? They just have to close their eyes and meditate, and I'll just meet them in the ethers. <laughs> <laughs> or my website has everything. It's uh, davidnewmanmusic.com. There's a few of us David Newmans out there um, who are musicians. But, yeah, you know, I've been teaching an online course that's very dear to my heart. It's called Practical Mantra. And when COVID hit, I felt just motivated and inspired to find a way to empower people with mantras in simple ways that could really help them with prosperity and health and strength and peace and confidence and love. So I came up with a curriculum of four, eight, 16 really simple, beautiful mantras that I teach in that course. So I've been doing that every month and really loving it. And then I do a mantra meetup once a month. And I'm also uh, doing a Kirtan College, which is a specific training for the, those kinds of more musical kinds of mantras that, that we were discussing prior. So uh, I'm continually just envisioning new possibilities. And um, I, I miss being with people. Um, I miss that exchange. But like you and I were discussing before we went live, yeah, I'm grateful to be able to, there's a Sanskrit word, which is Sangha, to have community in this way. And it's interesting because when I chant with people on Zoom, everybody has to mute themselves because of the time lag. So they're essentially chanting only with me, but everybody's chanting. And it's a very interesting phenomenon for me because it is different than chanting by myself. Like even though I'm not hearing anybody with my ears as I'm chanting because everybody's muted, I'm seeing their lips move. And, you know, I'm seeing their faces. And, and and if I close my eyes, I just feel there is some communal kind of experience happening. And, and it's more energetic than anything else. Yeah, I was going to say it's energetics because it's so interesting, the Zoom thing. You know, I do energy work and I'm working with clients. And it's amazing that, it, that I, at first I was like, is this going to work? 
is this actually going to work? Am I going to be able to do this? Is it going to have the same effect? Is it going to be as powerful? Is it? And it does. Right. Well, the, the downside of this time is not being able to be near people, but the beauty of you know, what we were just describing, it does show that, you know, we are connected beyond our forms that, you know, you can be thousands of miles away from somebody and have this uh, exchange of heart. And it it certainly does point to the truth that we're we're connected beyond just temporal experience. Yeah. That we're all connected, a oneness of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. David, I appreciate the conversation today. It's my pleasure, Nick. Uh, It's always a joy. Uh, for those of you who probably don't know, Nick and I uh, created a musical together, which was a lovely gift to me in my creative process. We we got to see it. What was it called? Workshopped? Is that is that uh-huh. workshop? That's the right word. Yeah. Working with amazing singers and actors. So Nick gave me a great creative gift just to have that experience. And we were talking prior and just uh, envisioning the possibility of that coming to life at some point in the future. Yeah, you never know, right? You never know what what or how. And yeah. um like you were saying, everything in its in its way and its time and following the energy. Yeah. Following where where if and when it is to be to its full fruition, it will. It'll come the the fruit will the fruit will ripen, as you said. Yeah, and I love that dance of just being invitational to the universe and simultaneously just unattached. You know, yeah. it, it's a nice way to walk through life. You know, that I really have gotten there with my creative projects. Mm. As you know, I've had several projects that have been long-term, five, six, ten years. It's like a child, you know. Each each one of them are, are, are my children, and I'm allowing them to mature in the time and the way in which they're meant to mature, rather than trying to force my agenda on them. And you primed me for that when we started the project. You said this could take a very long time, if at all. You know, so um, yeah. you sort of set me up to just, you know, not have expectations. So or not, you know, because some projects, they happen quickly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Namaste, Nick. Namaste. You take good care, my friend. If you enjoy this podcast, tell your friends. Please rate, write us a review, and subscribe so we can spread the word and other solopreneurs just like you can find us.